0: Hello, and welcome to the BPL Podcast. My name is Zach. I'm the programming librarian and the host of this episode. In today's episode, we're celebrating Toni Morrison. Toni Morrison was an unparalleled and prolific author. In her lifetime, Toni Morrison published 11 novels and two novellas, 10 children's books with her son Slade, two plays and a musical, a libretto, and numerous non books and collections. Her grasp on language was masterful. Open a Morrison book to any page and find yourself in awe of sentences that will stun you with their beauty, devastate you with hard truths laid bare, and lift you up with hope and love, all in equal measure. Perhaps the only thing that compares to her greatness as an author is her presence as a community builder. On top of winning a Nobel Prize in Literature for her work as an author, Miss Morrison was a trailblazing editor who paved the way and made space for Black authors and literary professionals, an educator who taught the next generations of writers, and an activist who challenged us with love and compassion to be a better society. Toni Morrison was a luminary in literature and in life. Tony Morrison Day is celebrated on February 18th in Ohio, commemorating her birthday. Today's episode features a recording of the Celebrating Tony Morrison program with Hanif Abdurraqib and Dion Custer Edwards that took place at the library on February 16th. Hanif and Dion are carrying on the legacy of Toni Morrison in their work as poets and authors and also as educators and community builders. We are extremely grateful to Hanif and Dion for spending an evening at the Bexley Public Library discussing the influence of Toni Morrison on their work. A quick note before we jump into the program. The legendary poet and playwright Charles Said Lyons passed away at the age of 88 earlier this month and a repast service was held at the King Arts Complex before the program was recorded. We'll hear Hanif and Dion call up Said several times throughout the conversation and pause for a moment of silence. We've decided to keep this in the podcast because of the gravity of the moment. Iz said was definitely in the room during Hanif and Dion's conversation this evening. Without further ado, let's jump into the program.
1: Hi. Hey. Hi, Dion.
2: Hi, Hanif.
1: Um, here, we, here we are. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, everyone, for, for being here. Did we want to read a bit of Ms. Morrison's work first?
2: Yeah. yeah. I think that's nice to bring her into the okay. space.
1: I had... Yeah. It's, I was at um, I was at the memorial service for Brother Is said right before this, and I was like, I'm gonna go home because I want I have this uh, first edition signed copy of Jazz at my house, and I was like, I'm gonna go home and get the get the Jazz, I'm gonna read the excerpt that I love out of Jazz, and then I got it, and I stepped outside my house and felt how hard it was raining, and I was like, no, i was staying, you know, yeah, at the crib. I was like, I can I can just Google the excerpt, okay. you know, um, it's one of those things where. The book is like old, and it's gonna fall apart any day now. And I'm afraid of of accelerating the process of disintegration.
2: I had a hard copy of Jazz's in the car.
1: I know there was they're selling them outside, and I was like, but I pulled up. I pulled up. The you should read first, as I'm as I'm telling this bad story about my.
2: (laughs) No, that's how I feel about this. We'll talk about this later, but that's how I feel about. I know you see
1: how fast I put that down was because I was like, this is fragile. It's. And I it's, can't be the one who ruins Keon's book.
2: You know, no, it's, it's, we'll talk about it. But, you know, I said that I've, I've read um, this book, the children's book, The the Big Box, um, by Toni Morrison and Slave Morrison, to, I have three children and my oldest is 18. And so it's really, I've read this book and it's been an important one. And maybe we'll get into it, sort of how Where's, Toni writes um, about children in yeah. her work. Um, do you want me to start? You should start. Okay. I'm going to start with an excerpt from um, the interview from the fall of, of 1993, Paris Review.
1: Yeah, yeah.
2: And it really, this excerpt speaks to me in so many ways, and we'll talk about it afterwards. But I keep reading this over and over again. I've been reading this over and over again for many, many years. And um, and it just, it sums up so many things for me. So, um, Toni Morrison writes... Writing before dawn began as a necessity. I had small children when I first began to write, and I needed to use the time before they said, Mama. And that was always around five in the morning. Many years later, after I stopped working at Random House, I just stayed at home for a couple of years. I discovered things about myself I had never thought about before. At first, I didn't know when I wanted to eat, because I had always eaten when it was lunchtime, or dinnertime, or breakfast time. Work and the children had driven all of my habits. I didn't know the weekday sounds of my own house. It all made me feel a little giddy. I was involved in writing Beloved at the time. This was in 1983, and eventually I realized that I was clearer-headed, more confident, and generally more intelligent in the morning. The habit of getting up early, which I had formed when the children were young, now became my choice. I am not very bright or very witty or very inventive after the sun goes down. Recently, I was talking to a writer who described something she did whenever she moved to her writing table. I don't remember exactly what the gesture was. There's something on her desk that she touches before she hits the computer keyboard, but. We began to talk about little rituals that one goes through before beginning to write. I, at first, thought, I didn't have a ritual, but then I remembered that I always get up and make a cup of coffee while it is still dark. It must be dark. And then I drink the coffee and watch the light come. And she said, well, that's a ritual. And I realized that For me, this ritual comprises my preparation to enter a space that I can only call non-secular. Writers all devise ways to approach that place where they expect to make the contact, where they become the conduit, or where they engage in this mysterious process. For me, light is the signal in the transition. It's not being in the light, it's being there before it arrives. It enables me in some sense. I tell my students one of the most important things they need to know is when they are their best creatively. They need to ask themselves, what does the ideal room look like? Is there music? Is there silence? Is there chaos Chaos outside? Or is there serenity outside? What do I need in order to release my imagination?
1: Um, thank you for that. I, um, one of the first writing workshops, or maybe the first one I ever went to was Callaloo. And the poet Livy Ivy Francis told me a thing that I later learned that she got from that, like she extracted from that interview. And she told me that it's important for writers to set their table, mm. like in a very physical sense, right? To say, um, the, the, the point she was making was that writers, tend to know how to enter the work, mm-hmm. but they don't really ever learn how to exit the work, particularly when you're talking about work that is like weighty or mm-hmm. traumatic or work that takes a piece of you and, and then leaves that piece of you inside of the the material. Yeah. Um, and to set one's table is to kind of, um, what's that fucking movie with the dreams where you're like in the dream, Inception. Oh. And they have that thing. I, I know this, I don't really I haven't seen, I've seen that movie like once several years ago, but they have that thing when you come out of the dream where you're like, yeah. okay, this is real again. Yeah. And it was a, a reminder, and Ms. Morrison is like so ritual-based mm-hmm. um, that like I learned, writers ask me all the time, like, what are your rituals, or how can I build? I mean, I just had a had a conversation with the writer at Is said Memorial. I was like, yeah. how do I find a ritual for myself? It's like then they find you. You know what I mean? That's like right. because they're born out of necessity, That's right right like tony Tony Morrison learned to build a life around light because that is what she had because as a writing mother, that is what I mean, you know you know obviously you know this more than i I, I, like, I like I just have a dog, I have no kids
2: <laughs> Wendy <laughs> <laughs> well. I love that story because um, I think ritual is, and, I, and, and thank you for continuing to call up Issaid, right? And in many ways. Um, uh, well, the last time I was here on this stage was with Issaid. Yeah, yeah. So um, just maybe even a moment to just feel that. There is something about the dark. Um, I very much find that my brain is doing something incredible in the early morning. And so part of it is all the people in my house are asleep.
1: Yeah, yeah.
2: And I can do a great many things. I'm, I'm masterful, like I take care of a lot of things. I am super creative. Or at least I think I'm trying to be creative at, at these early, early morning times. And a lot of people that know my, know my writing practice, um, know that. And so it's funny because whether it's social media or text message, I will, people who know me know that they're likely to text me early, early in the morning and hear from me. Yeah. Like that's yep. the time to catch me. Um, and there's there's reading that's happening, but there's also I, I, I love the ritual of finding the light, waiting for the light. And that wait, I think, is full of um, lots of thinking, full of uh, me busying myself. I might be making lunch. Um Some of you know I'm an avid gym goer. So I am in the gym getting my brain going as well uh, and thinking. But also a lot of my writing happens in the early morning. And I agree there's something about what the brain is capable of doing early in the morning that for me, I think it's the exhaustion from the end of the day, right? right? Like Toni Morrison talks about... Um some, somewhere either later in that interview or in another interview, um, I remember her saying it just doesn't come out the same in, in the evening. And that makes a ton of sense to me. I mean, in, in some ways, working full time, having a life, raising two sons as she was. Um, when, I th- when I think of, of being a mother and trying to find time to write, that is... Almost the only space, and for for a little while, I was thinking, is that selfish? Is that is that no? It's the time that I have, and it's the time where I've even written about it. It's so quiet, mm-hmm. and there's a stillness, but there's activity, and and so that that passage really resonates with me. I think ritual in terms of I think we both watch the sky. You watch the sky yeah. too, right? Yeah. Um, And so there's something amazing happening in the sky in that early morning. And sometimes there's a picture that I might take, but sometimes there's just sitting by the window. The window's important where I write, too. I need to sit by a window. And I just love the sort of slowness of here is the light coming to be. Um, So, yeah.
0: Yeah.
1: I'm going to read an excerpt from Jazz. And... It's important for two reasons. So there are two libraries that are really important to my life. One of them is the Livingston branch on the east side. Mm-hmm. But before the Livingston branch was built, I would come, like my parents, would take me here when I was very young. And the first time I held a copy of Jazz was in this library, when I was just like, I don't know, small enough to read, but not small enough. They're not big enough to kind of, mm-hmm. you know, that kind of in-between phase where you're just like grabbing anything and looking at words. But I opened Jazz and kind of thumb through it. And there's this excerpt excerpt I love because I think what Toni Morrison does does really well as a writer, like from a craft standpoint, that, you know, sometimes I feel like people talk about Toni Morrison's work from a craft standpoint with these like vagaries. Mm-hmm. They use these broad overarching words like musical or mm-hmm. poetic, which to be honest, like that type of stuff gets affixed to black writers more than any other writers. And it doesn't actually say anything. You know what I mean? Like lyrical, music, all this stuff doesn't actually do anything to detangle what's actually happening in the work. It just sounds like something you would affix to a black writer, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, but what Ms. Morrison actually was doing is um, a type of hypnotism in a way that convinced you that you were propelling, that you were at a point of propulsion when in reality you're kind of just standing still. Mm-hmm. She was such a good maker of a moment. Mm-hmm. It's, it's hard It's hard to slow a moment down to the point in place that she could slow a moment down and still make a reader feel like they were moving forward within that moment. And Mm so I'm going to read this, this excerpt. I'm crazy about this city. Daylight slants like a razor cutting the buildings in half. In the top half, I see looking faces, and it's not easy to tell which are people, which the work of stonemasons. Below is a shadow where any blasé thing takes place, clarinets and lovemaking, fists in the voices of sorrowful women. A city like this one makes me dream tall and feel in on things. It's the bright steel rocking above the shade below that does it. When I look over strips of green grass lining the river, at church steeples and into the cream and copper halls of apartment buildings, I'm strong. Alone, yes but top-notch and indestructible. Like the city in 1926 when all the wars are over and there will never be another one. The people down there in the shadow are happy about that. At last, at last, everything's ahead. The smart ones say so, and people listening to them and reading what they write down agree. Here comes the new. Look out, there goes the sad stuff, the bad stuff, the things nobody could help stuff, the way everybody was then and there, forget that. History is over, you all, and everything's ahead at last. In halls, in offices, people are sitting Around thinking future thoughts about projects and bridges and fast clicking trains underneath. The AMP hires a colored clerk. Big legged women with pink kitty tongues roll money in the green tubes for later on, then they laugh and put their arms around each other. Regular people corner thieves in alleys for quick retribution, and if he is stupid and has robbed wrong, thieves corner him too. Hoodlums hand out goodies, do their best to stay interesting, and since they are being watched for excitement, they pay attention to their clothes and the carving out of insults. Nobody wants to be an emergency at Harlem Hospital, but if the Negro surgeon is visiting, pride cuts down the pain. Mm. And although the hair of the first class of colored nurses was declared unseemly for the official Bellevue nurse's cap, there are 35 of them now, all dedicated and superb in their profession. Nobody says it's pretty here. Nobody says it's easy either. What it is, is decisive. And if you pay attention to the street plans all laid out, the city cannot hurt you.
2: Mm. There's a kind of clarity, right? Yeah. Like there's a kind yeah. of there's a clarity, and and I even love the pace that you read that at because it does have that that um there's a there's a kind of inertia there's a right and there's a pace and there's every bit of descriptive right like thinking about craft right um you know just such detail and um, specificity and writing about black folk unapologetically yeah right.
1: Yeah, I don't know if anyone's ever seen it. I was going to like try to project it, but I didn't know if we'd have the capability. There's, um, there was an old HBO documentary called The Blacklist, which was essentially just like interviews with black people. Mm-hmm. The one that's most famous is weirdly Chris Rock. Um, because he says this, this thing about how, you know, he's like one of the most successful black people in America and his neighbor is a white dentist, <laughs> which, but embedded in this, in, this, in these interviews is Toni Morrison's. Mm-hmm. And hers is so brilliant because she talks about um, how early on in her life she learned to depart from the idea of even considering whiteness as like a hovering specter. And she tells a story about how she worked when she was a girl, she was working cleaning houses mm-hmm. um, in like the white neighborhoods in Lorraine. And she would come home late. And her dad would be like, why are you coming home so late? she'd be like, oh, well, you know, I stayed after to to clean a little extra to do it. And her her dad was like, but that's not your house. You know, like, this is your house. You go there to do what you need to do. And then you come home and you build a home here. Mm -hmm. And even that mindset, that idea of like, I have to go work over here. I have to survive here. But I get to live somewhere else. Mm -hmm. And I get to build a life in this place. Yes. Right. And to Mm -hmm. delineate this idea of like, what one must do to survive the world and through the whatever you benefit from in that survival how you get to build a life outside of survival I, that's um that's a lesson too
2: i i love that i you know in the documentary in tony morrison that doc, that documentary um i think it's next netflix maybe yeah where she talks about her grandfather and language and reading and and really sort of talks about reading as a kind of revolutionary act and how um, she too would read everything that she yeah. could get her hands on and how um, as she was um, sort of progressing in life and progressing in her career, you know, this idea of writing, in a way that wasn't about pleasing white people, right? And how yeah. there was a lot of criticism for her work. It's like, you're not writing enough for white people, right? Like, you're yeah. not. And, I, I, and and she talks about really not wanting to write toward the white gaze. And somehow writing about, writing towards Black folks, writing about the Black experience, particularly with so many really complex women and girls as 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 sort of lead characters or sort of pulling the story through in that day and even in this day, right. I have to say, it, it is profound, remarkable, and important.
1: Yeah, I mean... Some people who have maybe like read A Little Devil in America have heard this story, but notoriously I turned in A Little Devil in America and then I took it back and rewrote it. Right. Because I wasn't satisfied. Like, I think what Miss Morrison taught me has taught a lot of black writers is to ask the question of what if, like what if this didn't center this idea and instead centered, you know what I mean? And I my my approach to that was like, well, what if this wasn't a book about the history of appropriation? And instead was just a book about like, what if I just want to say Soul Train was great? Like, what if I just want to evangelize? Like, you know what I mean? Like, what if I just want to evangelize about these black performers? And to understand that there is a world where people can't even fathom that, like can't even fathom a book that's not trying to argue for, you know. But like, for me, from where I am coming from... What is it, you know, if we're talking about Aretha Franklin, what's there to argue? You know, me and the folks I love aren't arguing about this shit. You know what I mean? Right. Like, it's there. The greatness is there. And so I think there's a permission, too, that I return to. I I read Miss Morrison a lot. But when I read, uh, my favorite book is Jazz. My favorite book of hers Mm -hmm. is Jazz. Mm -hmm. And I love how she wrote complicated Black women without punishing them.
2: Yes. Right? Like, throughout, through the text. Yeah.
1: She would write women with complications, flaws, or what have you. But that process of massaging those complications out didn't come necessarily at their expense on the pages. They didn't, didn't, um, even if they were suffering, it wasn't like um, retribution for their flaws.
2: Right, right. I mean, it it makes me think about Pecola in the Blue Assign. Yeah. Like, tragic, right? And still, Oh, it's so complex, sort of the scenes of, of her abuse. It's so complex. I mean, even just thinking about, oh gosh, Frida, and I can't remember the other. Uh, yeah. Claudia, uh, Claudia and Frida. And the mayor. thank you. The, um, I told you my brain, I don't know what time my brain is like, ah!
1: Yeah!
2: <laughs> um, but see, this is why, community. Thank yes. you. Thank you, community. Yes. That's what we, that's what we do. That's what we do. The sort of the hopefulness of the marigolds. Yeah. It's like maybe the marigolds will grow. Maybe we put these seeds in that soil, soil being a metaphor for so many, including right. their bodies. Um, and maybe those marigolds will grow. And then when they don't, right? Like even when they don't, but there's still this sort of hopefulness and even some of the sort of last, um, imagery of Pecola, right? Like this idea of, um, of, um, I don't know, just the sadness and the darkness and the losing one's mind even or body, right? And the way that Miss Morrison wrote about the body and wrote about... What the world might do to the body, particularly a, a, a black girl body, a, a, a black woman's body, what what happens to the body, and and the complexity of what is happening to the body in a world in a society where maybe these bodies are are, are seen in a way that is less than or that is not included or or, or whatever the way that body might be seen, and how there were still light, there was still hope, there was still something. There was still something tender. And it does remind me of, you know, that sort of hard and tender, right? Yeah. It it reminds me of of a little devil um in America when you talk about when you talk about spades. And then yeah. when you talk about the sort of tenderness between um it might have been woo where you talk about woo like, yeah. like the yeah, tenderness. Yeah. Right? And just this idea that that there might be tenderness as well as it's like that harmony and hard right it's that and she could do that um in a way that you could not stop reading you could not stop thinking about it you 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 almost can you know what's about to happen and yet you can't stop reading and then it's so also tender
0: right and
2: you're yeah. you're comp- I'm complicated reading this, right? I'm like I'm like oh, you know. And then you don't even know what to do with it because it's so beautiful and soft and tender and loving, and and hard and painful and
1: yeah. There's, I think tenderness is also comes that way of autonomy, in in the work um, because what I also think that she did was uh, black women had autonomy in her book, like autonomy to leave things, yes. autonomy to own what yeah. that what leaving means. Yeah. Um, yeah. I have a, I don't, I still to this day, you know, I still actually don't know who sent me this, um, but like my friends, one of my friends sent it to me and none of them has admitted it or maybe like I have a stalker, but hopefully it's <laughs> the former and not the latter. Um, but I, you know, like in 2020, I, I went through a breakup and I was trying to consider these ideas of like, you know, I live alone and this is me and my sweet dog, Wendy. And I was trying to like, um... Consider these ideas of loneliness as a, as a reclamation project, emotional and material in whatever ways you can. if someone sent me this, this big flag that I now have in my house that is a quote from the, yes, my lonely is mine. The yeah. full, you know, your lonely is yours. And, but I, I think all the time about how Miss Morrison offered autonomy to her characters, particularly the women. And that too is, is something that is a little bit more rare even in, in, in like all forms of writing and media yes. now, yeah. but it's still, is exciting for me when I read something or watch something or whatever and kind of see um, a black woman exiting on her own terms and building up a, a, a world that is her own. I mean, it's a very, like, 90s R&B. You know, I grew up on 90s R&B, you know, oh, R&B, so it's like... I mean... That is where I, I saw it, like, most manifested, right? Like, I think, like... I grew oh, up I on it's 70s like, R&B. <laughs> <laughs> I used, like, uh, Leading
2: into 80s and 90s, yeah. right? Yeah.
1: It's like yeah. a funny... I mean, like, you can draw... It, it may be funny on its face to say that I draw a direct line between Mary J. Blige and, and Toni Morrison, but it's I mean, there. like these are things are these things are
2: absolutely. blueprinted
1: throughout a history. Absolutely. So um,
2: no, Mary J. Blige, you could count on Harmony and Hard, yeah, and you could absolutely. count
1: on
2: Joy and Pain. I mean, you could all, all, all of the yeah, it, it is all. And there. you learn
1: that you learn yes. that whether or yes. not Very much so. whether or not you realize that it's happening or where it's coming mm-hmm. from, right? Mm-hmm. You, there are. There are Black writers I love because they they're, they're, they are so good at writing dialogue that sounds like the people I know and love. Mm-hmm. Like Hurston, for example. Mm-hmm. Hurston wrote like our people spoke.
2: Absolutely. And then
1: there are Black writers I love whose dialogue I adore because it is written the way an ancestor might speak to yes. us from yes. some other plane. And yes. Morrison is that.
2: Yes. Right? Yes. Like,
1: it's it's a dialogue that is familiar but also otherworldly, and what that does is that kind of. And this, is, I mean, I adore both Hurston and Morrison. I'm not like placing. Right. I'm not doing a binary thing here. I'm just saying like, what Morrison is has done for me is created this kind of eternal, ethereal dialogue that does feel like it's being spoken to me from an elsewhere someone from someone who is not alive so i don't have to i don't have to do a direct accounting of the language right yeah i can read something and say my mother would maybe say that
2: yeah because yeah she's
1: not here you know yeah uh, no
2: absolutely it's it's interesting because lorraine is i'm originally from cleveland and so lorraine is not that far from cleveland the characters that tony morrison made right and 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 surfaced for us sound very familiar yeah right and and Sort of not in an exact way or something specific that they've said, but I'm like, I know these folks because these folks are me, right? I know these women because these women are me. And I write so much into that, into even that tradition, into a woman having a voice, a woman having her own terms. And I, and I appreciate agency. I, 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 and autonomy. I, I'm gonna call that up in a minute with the way that that Toni Morrison wrote about children too, because I want to talk a little bit about that. But I, I appreciate the um, the tradi- a, a literary tradition of a Toni Morrison, a Lucille Clifton, a Gwendolyn yeah. Brooks, a Rita Dove. Right? Like these are the folks that I'm writing inside of and calling to and saying, um, these are my mothers.
1: Yeah. Yeah, yeah. These
2: are my mothers, right? And when I say mothers, I say grandmothers and aunties and, and, um, mothers who weren't quite mothers, mothers who would, um, have a little something to say to you if you were a little bit beyond where you needed to be. Or, you know, we were mothered, right? Yeah. We were mother, yeah. there we're mothers and mothers and mothers. And I'd like to think in some ways, um, that might be me sometimes, right? <laughs> like, you know, when, when, when I, like, like, there's, there's big love. And so I'm, I'm definitely inside that tradition but I want to revisit what you said about a kind of autonomy or agency because what I appreciated about Miss Morrison, particularly around, I I didn't realize that there were 10 children's books actually um, that she wrote with Slave Morrison, which is really lovely. But there is this one, um, The Big Box, which is uh, a book that, I have read to my now 18-year-old, my now 13-year-old, my now 10-year-old. And it's interesting because when I grabbed this book to bring it, and it is delicate, right? Like you don't want to, it's going to just fall apart at any minute. (laughs) You're like, oh. Um, When when I grabbed this book to bring it, my 10-year-old was like, you're not getting rid of that book, are you? I, like, he hasn't touched this book in yeah, so long, yeah. right? But I'm like, no, no, I just want to share this book with, you know, with community and with, with people. Um, the Big Box is very much that kind of a story. And when I think about even the way that we're trying to raise our kids to, you know, there's balance here, right? To have a sense of inquiry. And it's just like... Okay, do it respectfully, though. I'm going
1: to need you to
2: be respectful. But ask the questions, Right. right? Ask the questions. And also, you're telling me who you are in the world. And it's interesting because even in some you know, I'm thinking so much even I don't know why bluest eye is still kind of just lingering, maybe because those characters just I can't get I I there was a book club, there was a community book club with um Taisha Um Radford Yeah, Thort, yeah of course. and um and and several others uh where the Bluest Eye we read we read it and there was a there was a conversation. She leads these community um uh sort of learning groups, and there was a conversation with all women. We had read the bluest eye, and I came to The conversation sort of ready to talk about it. Took notes. I was ready. I was like, Oh, I reread the bluest eye. Um, and could not join the conversation, which was virtual at the time. It was during the pandemic and couldn't join because my kids. Yeah. They were just, it was a lot going on in the background. I was like, y'all. And I kept typing in the chat. I'm going to be there. I'm going to be there. And I was listening, but I couldn't really deal with it because of the kids. And. You know, it just, it, it makes me think of, um, it's such a sidebar story, but it makes me, (laughs) it makes me think of how Toni Morrison talked about children sort of just being there, but not being attended to, not being loved, not necessarily being even cared for. And yet there was love. There was a kind of, of maybe a presumed love or an assumed love, um, a kind of, a, a kind of love that I guess if they're doing for me, you know, that must be love kind of thing. But in this book, there is this, um, I don't know. It's a story about adults kind of really trying to sort of keep a child in a box, trying to keep a child in a, in a particular kind of way, trying to say, we're going to give you all the things you need. You're going to have all these things, you know, you know, whatever the things a child might need, toys and snacks and all the things but i i need you to stay in this box and 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 there's a repeated line in in the story that talks about cuz you don't know how to handle your freedom and so that's really powerful for me because when i think about sort of just this idea of Who says children don't know how to handle their freedom? And sometimes like these guardrails that we think we're putting around children, right? And thinking, oh, we're sort of protecting them from knowing a thing or doing a thing or, oh, don't read that or don't look at that or don't, you know, to some extent, yes, of course. But they don't need a like precious box that we put them in or contain them in, right? Like there's something about you are your own being. You're your own human and you came out whole. Right. And there's something about this book that sort of just reminds. And I love that I have reminded my children over the years and years um, of that. You are your own being and we're not going to put you in a box, actually. You're going to be who you can be, who you want to be. And we're sort of here witnessing that in some ways and not trying to sort of control that. And so I really love, uh, love this book. And I'm sure many of the other, uh, you know, many of those, this has been sort of a staple in our house, but I'm sure many of the other books are, are probably similar, yeah. you yeah. know. Um, but I don't know, this way of writing about, writing about children sort of in her novels, really different. The children's book sort of really allows a, a, a sort of child to, to have that autonomy that you talked about, to have that agency. And I, and I appreciate, I appreciate that in a children's book, right? Yeah. You won't find that, you right? Won't it's find not no. like, Little bears and balloons and just whatever. It's no, actually right? right. right? Actually, you, you can not handle your freedom. Actually yeah. you don't need this box. Actually, you know, maybe question some of these things that people tell you or don't tell you. Right. And that's I don't know, in a time, in a time now when, you know, I don't wanna open up some can of worms, but where books are, you know, you know we know what's happening in the books. So I'm not yes. even gonna, I'm not gonna go there, but right, like this yeah. idea that somehow you can't handle. Your freedom, right. reading, is a revolutionary act. Somehow, maybe you can't handle that in some way, and you can't maybe ask the questions you might have after reading something that's complex that might be different from you. So, anyway, I won't go down a no,
1: she was whole in, long
2: line of that. But
1: she was also very good about writing thoughtfully about that thing you mentioned about like loving children beyond providing yeah like not substituting providing for love like yeah. there's the has anyone seen fences play movie mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. the notorious scene of fences was like who says I gotta like you because yeah. you know what I mean yeah. which is like very triggering for me.
0: yeah
2: <laughs>
1: um, <laughs> but beautifully acted um, <laughs> but she wrote so well about loving children beyond this idea of providing as as a kind of yeah. signifier of soul signifier of love though. Providing is a signifier of affection. It cannot be the only. Yeah. Um, yeah. When. Uh, so I, I kind of want to talk about Miss Morrison as an Ohio writer. And uh, in part because so I, I met I met Toni Morrison only one time. And I was very nervous. This was like, um, <laughs> it was really shortly before she passed. I had like, I think my second book had just come out or maybe the tri book. I don't remember. But I I didn't know what to say. And I was um I was like led by the hand to her by another great Ohio writer. And I just said, I also write and I'm from Ohio. <laughs> and, and she said this really sweet thing to me. This was when she was like mostly bound in like a wheelchair, yeah. you know? And I, because I was so nervous, I was like moving my hands a lot. And she did this thing where she kind of like put her hand on my hand to stop my hand from moving so much traveling because she was probably like, you're freaking me out. Um, and she said, Well, what? where are you from in Ohio? And I told her I'm from Columbus. And she said again, so you, you're you a writer from Ohio? And I said, yeah. And she said, well, you have a responsibility to a very particular kind of beauty. And I remember, like, because I remember I was going through this crisis at the time of, like, I have to be a writer from Ohio and I have to write about Ohio and everything. But the I, the reality is that I was doing the the permission there was like you're already doing it, yes. you know what i mean you've you've been a witness to a very specific kind of life and a very specific yes. kind of beauty,, yes. and so you have no option but to pursue that in the work, whether you know what's happening or not yes. and um I think about that often, not just because it was like you know I met my like literal hero, like the only I don't really have any heroes except Miss Morrison, and that's it um <laughs> that's really, <laughs> truly that's it, but it was also because um. I think about this lineage of Ohio writers you mentioned, Rita Dove, mm-hmm. um, Ross Gay is an mm-hmm. Ohioan, Ileas mm-hmm. um, Moss, mm-hmm. Fiona Harvey, mm-hmm. all these, I mean, like the list is, is massive to say mm-hmm. nothing of the folks right here in Columbus. Mm-hmm. And um, all of them write with a sense of place that is rooted in understanding land, understanding earth, and understanding how that impacts the people. And, you know, it's, I feel like all of us or I think particularly for us black writers, we descend from Ms. Morrison in, one, in, in more than one way. Um, the only reason I took the editorial position at Tin House when I was all like, I don't really know anything. I don't know shit about editing books, like for real. Like, I don't know anything. And they were like, do you want to edit books? And I said, well, that's what Toni Morrison did, so yeah, you know, and, and really like very seriously. And I'm, not, I'm telling this story not to pat myself on the back at all, but to say that this is what I learned from Ms. Morrison, whose ethos was always about particularly evading the idea of Black scares, like the scarcity of Black genius. Mm-hmm. Because if we are to believe that Black genius is rare, that means that there's no accountability in our communities. Right. That means that there is no standard that anyone can be held to because we are saying, that person is the one, right. and there's no, there's no one like that person. And so that person has to be everything. And even if they're not, we'll let it slide. And so I was like, the approach, the way I learned, you know, all the all the writers that Miss Morrison brought to the forefront during her editing career, I took the position at Ten House, not because I know how to edit books, but because I was like, there are Black writers in the world who are better than I am, wow. and I want people to find them. And yes. the first book I edited was Prince Shakur, Prince out of Who's Like From Columbus, and I called Prince... And I was like, what are you working on, fam? And he was like, well, you know, I submitted this book to Tin House already. And they said no. And I was like, well, I wasn't there. So <laughs> send it to me again. Yeah. Like, send it to me. And, yeah. and he sent it to me. And I went to Tin House. And I was kind of just like, this is, this is what I want. Like, this is what, this is the package. You know what I mean? Like, if I'm coming here, this kind of work is coming with me. Mm-hmm. And if there's anything that... um if there's anything that decoration affords us, particularly as black artists, it's a real opportunity to not bask in whatever the decoration is and to instead say, if if decoration is what it takes to fool you, like real talk, if like this MacArthur is what it takes to fool you, then I'm bringing these, I'm bringing my friends along. You know what I mean? Yeah, like right. the that's door, you know what right. I mean? Like if this what it, if this is what it takes, then everybody's coming, mm-hmm. you know? And I think that is that is something I learned from this Morrison. And I actually think that is a very Midwestern ethos, truly.
2: Oh, for sure. Right? I mean... She ushered in Angela Davis. I mean, she ushered, she, I mean, you know, she ushered totally in Tony K. Bambar. Yeah, uh, Tony totally like. K. Bambar. Exactly. It's, you know, it, it's interesting that, um, that you bring up Prince because I had just, Come off of working with Prince, um, doing community-based work. I, I have that same, where I'm situated, um, as an arts educator and working in, um, in arts centers, museums, you know, arts institutions, if you will, being able to sort of hold space for someone that might identify similar or even different to see me really just making room for and supporting artists, right? Can I say
1: something, too? I don't want to embarrass you. I've told you this before, though. There's a real lineage between you and Miss Morrison as well because there's a a, a real act of sacrifice that you commit to when it comes to, like, your own... I mean, people know, I hope people know in the room that Dion is also a brilliant writer, like a brilliant writer who, to some... And I don't mean... I don't say sacrifice is, like, a pejorative, but, like, to some degree, who has sacrificed her own writing for the greater good of a lot of writers, like not in a lot of like young writers, a lot of older, just like a lot of people. So I think, I don't know before you got, to, I, cause I, I see, I feel like sometimes you like humbly tiptoe around that, but there's a real, <laughs> there's a real brilliance to that level of sacrifice. Um, yeah.
2: Thank you. Thank you for saying that. And. <laughs> um, there is a commitment, right? There's a commitment to start supporting artists. There's a commitment to holding space. And the writing did have to take, you know, move to the side. Maybe there would be a different career that I might have if, if I made a different choice, but this was the choice. Yeah. And I don't take it back. And I love it. And um, it does allow me to work in many ways with with you and so many others, right? There's so many amazing artists um, here and beyond here that um, I've gotten an, uh, the opportunity and I am a better person for that. And the writing will come and the writing does come. Yeah. Um, I, I want to circle back to meeting Toni Morrison because I did too. In the 90s <laughs> <laughs> um, back when Frank Hale, the Frank Hale Center yes. the old, yeah, Frank, the old Hale Frank Hale Center, Center yeah. um, where we used to gather and could find a place and back when um, when it sort of, I don't know, just we would find each other there in Ohio State. Um, I went there for undergrad and um, Ohio State was a big place and the, the Frank Hill Center was just some place we could find each other. but... I remember, and I feel like maybe I've told you this story, or somebody in this room knows this story, but um, I remember deciding that I was going to be an English major (laughs) and calling my mom and saying, Mom, I'm going to be an English major. I'm so excited. I love my classes. These are my people. Like, we read stuff. We write stuff. You know, I just was loving it. And, um, she said, well, I was, I was wondering when you were going to, um, decide that, when you were going to choose the major that, that in, in her mind, it felt that was a natural, right? That would be a natural thing for me to choose. And I said, well, why didn't you tell me? And she was just like, um, well, you never would have done it, right? (laughs) You never would have done it. It's true. It's true. But it was right after claiming my major at English as a major, that I met Toni Morrison. And it was just a handful of us. He had spoke that day, given a a talk, and a few of us had gathered around. And, you know, I said to her, of course, I'm honored to meet you, the whole thing, right? And so nervous. Yeah. But I had just claimed that I was an English major. Like, you know, I'm a writer, I'm gonna write. You know, she really, Sort of gave me a kind of comfort and reassuring and support that that was, that was indeed the decision to make and, and that I would figure out what to do with my words. Yeah. Right? Like she said, you'll figure out what to do with your words. And I thought, okay, okay, Toni Morrison just told me that, okay. You know, but it was that kind of reassurance from the elders. Right, right, right From right. the elders to say, you're doing good, girl. Keep going. You're doing good. And me sort of holding on to that and, and having that kind of confirmation from my mom and from Tony Morris. Right. So.
1: It's like, um, you know, a few weeks ago, whenever, Bron, whenever LeBron broke the scoring record, I got, call, I got called up to do an interview and I want to preface this by saying, like, you know, I, a lot of love for, for Braun. Like, I, you know, the yeah, whatever. Um, <laughs> but the interviewer went on this thing, and then they were like, you know, like, you're, you're a notable Ohioan, and so it's important, you know, like, you, you think LeBron is the greatest Ohioan to ever live. And I was like, oh, no, brother. <laughs> I'm sorry. like You know what I mean? Like, the interview never got published because I think they were expecting me to be like, yeah, of course. So I was like, brother, no, no, no. <laughs> Um, and, I, and I said, you know, I was like, I got a lot of love for, truly a lot of love for, for LeBron. But, like, for me, it's, like, Toni Morrison and then everyone else. And, you know, I, granted, if I were to make an Ohio Mount Rushmore, it'd be, it'd be, like, an entire mountain range. And undoubtedly, LeBron would be on it somewhere. But, yeah. you know, it's LeBron and, and John Glenn and Holly Berry. You know, I, I don't know. Um, all the Ohio players. <laughs> Jermaine Stewart from right here on the east side, Columbus, Ohio. I don't know. Yeah, th- th- it'd be, it would be a lot. Um, maybe Holly Berry twice. <laughs> but what I'm saying is, I, I, this is a hard pivot, but I, 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 I am coming from, um, and I know a couple people in the room are at Is memorial. And Is said like, for those who don't know, a, a legendary local poet, and the real impact of a life, in to talk about, like, legacy, yeah, The impact of your legacy is not necessarily what you win or mm-hmm. even like what you produce for the public. The impact of your legacy is how far the web of your community reaches and how those people love you in that container that you've built for them. Yes, um, yes. And I don't know, for for me and like for a lot of other Ohio writers, Toni Morrison is, is the blueprint, like the blueprint. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I'm not even... Everything I write is a failure to be, mm. to try to touch something that Toni Morrison wrote. Like if I wrote, if I write a good sentence and I know that it's a good sentence, I read it and I can trace it back to something I read from her. Yes, And, yes. and that actually is yes. like what legacy is, you know? Yes. And if you, I think if you are a writer or an art maker and you want to talk about legacy, especially in a container such as Ohio, so to speak, and you want to be cut from like that cloth, it takes more than just writing good things,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and that's I think the hardest thing mm-hmm. that people don't know. Yes, writing good good stuff is hard, but actually living a life that echoes so richly that it touches people within minutes or a minute of meeting you.
2: Yeah,
1: and defines a life. Yes, that that's yes. the hard part. Yes, like that's the hard thing. It's hard to write, sure, but it's harder to live well. Mm. And it's harder to live well in a way that impacts others' living. And I think, for me, like, Miss Morrison is, is the blueprint, not just on the text, but on the actual how to, how to create a legacy and a lineage of writers without even knowing you're doing it.
2: And there's work for artists to do. Yeah. You know, I think that we don't talk enough about the work that artists are doing in the world. Artists are doing work in the world. And it is not entertainment, surely, although we might be entertained. It is not just this thing over here that only rich people do. Yeah. It's not an added value in a, in a, in a K-12 education. It, it's a necessity. Artists are doing a heavy lift in the world. And we do not talk about that often enough. And it's interesting to be having a conversation about Toni Morrison, to lift up said to think about, because Issaid, I spent many a days in the Frank Hale Center yes. with Issaid as well, with all of the blessings and all of the guidance and all of the ways that said raised all of us, right? Right. And how Toni Morrison has done that as well, and how that can be direct or indirect, how the ancestors can raise us, how the great artists can raise us, and how the artists can have an accounting of what we are doing as humans in a life. It is not an extra thing you put on your menu of life. It is a necessity, art. And I, if I can read something from… Yes. Tony Morrison, that, that uh, in 2015, that, um, that I think sort of really calls upon that, you know, James Baldwin also talks about if you want to know what's going on in the world, you need to ask the poets. And yeah. by poets, he meant artists. Yeah, All the artists. You could ask philosophers, you could ask doctors, you could ask business people. They're doing some fine things, I'm sure. <laughs> however, <laughs> however, artists... If you want to know what's going on with humans, it is artists. Yeah. And it's not this extra thing that just hangs on your wall in, 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 in the name of aesthetics. It is a heartbeat. It is how you know you are alive. It is the way we feel our way through a life. We have to feel our way through a life. and Art invites us to do that. It dares us to do yeah. that. So I'm going to read this because we've talked about right there's there's these points where artists are feeling a thing and it's hard and you're not sure what to do with that hard you're not sure what to do with the pressure you're not sure what to do with all the things that you feel and i tell people you know when you're an artist you can't turn that off no you can't say not today i can't feel this thing i'm not sure what to do with this thing it is constant, yeah. and you can't turn it off, and it's just, it's just moving through you. And so that's where the making happens. And so I want to read something that, that, kind of, that sort of talks about that. This is Toni Morrison, um, 2015, The Nation. I am staring out of the window in an extremely dark mood, feeling helpless. Then a friend, a fellow artist, calls to wish me happy holidays. He asks, how are you? And instead of, oh, fine, and you, I blurt out the truth, not well. Not only am I depressed, I can't seem to work, to write. It's as though I am paralyzed, unable to write anything more in the novel I've begun. I've never felt this way before. I am about to explain with further detail when he interrupts shouting, no, 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 no. This is precisely the time when artists go to work.
1: Mm.
2: Not when everything is fine, but but, but in times of dread, that's our job. Dictators and tyrants routinely begin their reigns and sustain their power with the deliberate and calculated destruction of art, the censorship and book burning of unpoliced prose, the harassment and detention of painters, journalists, poets, playwrights, novelists, essayists. Forcing a nation to use force is easy when the citizenry is rife with discontent, experiencing feelings of a powerlessness that can be easily soothed by violence. And when the political discourse is shredded by an unreason and hatred so deep that vulgar abuse seems normal, disaffection rules. Our debates, for the most part, are examples unworthy of a playground. Name-calling, verbal slaps, gossip, giggles, all while the swings and slides of governance remain empty. Ms. Morrison writes further, None of this bodes well for the future. Still, I remember the shout of my friend that day. No. This is precisely the time when artists go to work. There is no time for despair, no place for self-pity, no need for silence, no room for fear. We speak, we write, we do language. That is how civilizations heal. I know the world is bruised and bleeding, and though it is important not to ignore its pain, it is also critical to refuse to succumb to its... malevolence. Like failure, Chaos contains information that can lead to knowledge, even wisdom, like art.
1: I do wanna I don't know, did y'all have time like slide out for questions? Because I don't wanna like over Yeah. You... We were like, I don't know if people are gonna ask questions, yeah. but if you guys are on right. Sure.
2: Black voices are often marginalized, especially, you know, in literature. And Toni Morrison, she had a very distinct voice, but she also became a voice for our people. How do you encourage authors, writers, artists to be, find the balance between their voice and also the voice for their people?
1: I don't know, there has to be a balance. Maybe I'm, um, I mean, Surely, I think there are folks who emerge into the capital V voice for the people, but I would hope that it's unintentional that that emergence is unintentional, right like I don't know if Baldwin's waking up every morning and being like Today's, today is day one thousand and twenty five of being the voice for our people. I think it just happens <laughs> right because you tap into something that you're writing into um. I sometimes think like black creativity in uh, any landscape, but like, let's say the American landscape is pushing into an absence. You're creating into absence or you're creating into what wasn't always absence, but had something stolen from it. Right. And I think in the process of that making, in the process of like running into that absence, you are fulfilling a need ideally, not just for yourself. And if you are fortunate, if that need is fulfilled for enough people, Then you become a resonant voice. But my hope is that that's never intentional. My hope is that it's just what one is called to do. And then the results of that calling lead to some sort of legacy. But again, I think, like Ms. Morrison, that legacy is not just in in the writing work. That legacy is also saying other people are coming along with me because there are as many, there's potential for as many voices of the people as there are people, you know? and so I think some of that too is saying, like, mm-hmm. yeah, I'm not, I am not going at this alone. And as a matter of fact, not only am I not going it alone, I actually require
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, not just an audience, but I require a community to walk alongside me.
2: Mm-hmm. I, do, I do think um, there was a point where Toni Morrison really made the decision that here is who I'm writing to, yep. here is who I'm writing for, here is who I'm writing about. And it just became that. That was what the work was, right? I think people all around who have comment on art, who comment on art and who, you know, they have things to say about it. But I think there there was just a point where she said, this is what I'm writing to and this is who I am. And, um, okay, don't publish me, but, right? So
1: Eventually you're going to have to, you know what I mean? Like it's one of those things where like, I, yeah, I don't know. Not to... I'm not realizing I maybe called back to my own work too much tonight. But no. no <laughs> but I will do. say, like a part of a part of right Tony Morrison was the main inspiration between taking back a little devil in America and rewriting yeah. it. And yeah. the idea was like, I know this might displease you, but you're gonna have no choice. You know what I mean? Like, I am I'm not a very confident person <laughs> in most aspects of my life. But because I could channel Tony Morrison, it was this thing where it's like, I'm going to take this book back and write it in such a way that even if you're mad that I'm not that it's it's mine again. If you don't want to publish it, you're going to have no choice because somebody will. You know what I mean? Like it's one of. Yeah. So I think like Tony Morris is one of those things where it's like this is who I'm writing for to this is who I'm writing for. If you don't want to publish it, that's that you're you are fucking up. You know what I mean?
2: But you're here also to call to your work right? Like, yeah, we're, yeah. we're channeling, right? We're channeling yeah. the, so your your work is here, too.
1: It was very nice. Thanks, Dion.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> I also realized I was, I've cursed a bit tonight. I hope I was, I was like, with the, you know, I love, shout out to Kim Letty and, and the Mosaic folks. I was, like, kicking it with Mosaic folks a couple weeks ago, so I pop in on them sometimes, the high school program. Yep. And, and I was in there, like, talking how I talk, you know, and then one of them in the, in the Q&A was like, or like the, the, they do a great talk back at the end, and, and they were like, listen, I, I love that you don't apologize for cursing because, you know, you talk to us like we're those. So I was like, you know, that, unfortunately, you've gassed me up even more, you know what I mean? Because I thought I was watching myself. So, you know, I guess I shouldn't apologize. But, uh, you know, I feel like the library is like hollow ground. It's like cursing in a church, which I have also done, unfortunately. <laughs>
0: Can you tell us a little bit about how uh, Ms. Morrison came to Lorraine or came to Ohio and what the influences were of her family in her work?
2: You know, I think that I remember in the documentary and, um, oh, my gosh, Toni Morrison scholars, don't at me. But, um, you know, I I do think through um, like so many other. um, Migratory patterns. Yeah, migratory. Yeah, exactly. um, Sort of. Migrating from the South to the North um, for various reasons, sometimes fleeing, sometimes, um, you know, there's opportunities. You know, Lorraine had a, the, was it steel. I think? Steel there was Steele. Uh, really sort of finding a, a, a different life, um, saying, hey, I'm about to leave the South because the South, there's a lot going on here and I'm about to take my life here. And if you want to stay married, then, you come with me or not, you know? And so um it's interesting because actually my grandmother um came up from Birmingham. Um yeah. I think her family came up from Birmingham. Um my uh my 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 grandparents came up from Birmingham, but then my um my grandmother on my mom's side came up from Sparta, Georgia and was like, We're gonna go to Cleveland and I don't know if you're coming, but I'm going to take these be. kids, yeah, yeah that's, what <laughs> you know, <we're>, that's where <laughs> we're going to be. So, you know, I, I, that, was a, that was a sort of um, maybe not a fulfilling answer, but that's kind of what what, you see what I know. You know, what do I see? No, no. In
1: terms oh. of her family. Story. Yeah. The story of coming to... Of migration? Yeah, I mean, well, I do. I think, like, yeah. Yeah. well, one, I think the kind of tenderness and urgency with which Toni Morrison wrote about um, families in peril... Mm-hmm. is kind of, I think, like rooted in, because she's not that far removed generationally mm-hmm. from the urgency of migration, mm-hmm. right? And that comes alive. Like you. She, she was like working, when I told her story about she was working in, in the homes of folks, she was like young.
2: Yeah.
1: Too young likely to be, you know, like yeah. now you would not be able to get a job at that age, right? Yeah. So all of these things inform an urgency that I think arrives in her work, um, but also I think the tenderness, the tenderness is, is kind of rooted in that as well.
0: Mm-hmm. We had a question from the online audience. Um, someone asked, they know that Hanif mentioned his encounter with Jazz in the library, but could Dion share her first encounter with Morrison's work or another memorable intersection of their lives with Morrison's work?
2: Thank you for that question. It's a yeah. good one. So I, um, I contacted my mom because I was like, mom, did you have Toni Morrison on the bookshelf? Because these images, you know, when you're recalling the images, and I'm like, gosh, these images feel really familiar. I don't know why I know these images. And um I would say the first sort of, I, I want to say that probably on the shelf, my mom was avid reader. I mean, she yeah. just read and read and read, and that's where my love for books came from. And she had this bookshelf, and and, um, and I know Toni Morrison was there. Maybe you know th- I wasn't ready or didn't understand or whatever, but it was there. And I, Toni Morrison was in the home. But my some of my first memories are in undergrad, actually taking what was then called Black Studies. Now it's African and African-American studies, but it was Black Studies then. And, um, you know, it was taking Black women writers' um, classes and taking um, African-American women writers' classes. And... Um, that's when it, in, in some, in some ways, I probably encountered Toni Morrison as a child, right? From, from the yeah. bookshelf, from afar maybe, and then not really knowing what that was as a child. And then coming to her work later as a young adult, um, and really sort of, uh, kind of having sort of early memories of, of Sula and of, you know, the Blue Asai and of definitely of Jazz Dang. and Beloved, of course, right? Not even really ready for that in undergrad as a, as a young adult and then coming to those works later. Because I don't know, you just keep rereading Toni Morrison, yeah. right? It's just like, I've lived a little, maybe i'll get something even i just feel like i get something more like you know you you just keep reading yep. the work and just it's like okay i've lived a little i've had a few experiences Ah, i get this i get this so um i hope that answers your question so i do feel like as a child for sure exposed but i think the 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 biggest sort of imprint is is undergrad and in in courses where there were amazing um graduate students actually um uh Black women graduate students that were sort of introdu- and professors that were sort of introducing me to this work and and I'm 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 lucky to have encountered encountered that with um, in communities of women really in, in many yeah. of these classes um, to be able to sort of talk about some of these
0: topics.
1: Honey, if you've said that jazz is your favorite, um,
0: Toni Morrison, um, I didn't. I would be curious, Dion. What is your favorite? Uh, Tony Morrison, <laughs> why and everything. One question I would just to preface
2: that too and everything. Um, critics, um, I think, about ten years ago said the greatest novel of the last twenty-five years was *Beloved*, oh, and yeah. of course, I think it's a, Where do the two of you see you know? Because I think it's her most famous work, part, partly due to Oprah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but where do you see that in in her canon of works and everything? And so it, again, so about that, and also your favorite. Yeah. Book Dion.
2: Oh, favorites. Oh, don't ask me the favorites question. <laughs> um, you know, favorite, I don't know. I do actually really love jazz also. I yeah. I really love that. It's in, in the car um, right now. It, I really love that. I can't stop, you know, maybe it's not about favorite. It's the book you can't stop thinking right. about. And I do think that um, The Bluest Eye can't stop thinking about it. I just can't stop, right? Like, and I, I feel like it c- keeps coming up in my life. Um, Beloved scared me mm-hmm. and just really, you know, I, I definitely that sat in my in gut and stuck to my bones. I mean, even Sula, right? But yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know about favorite, right? And in, in some ways, there's and then you know I, I don't think we talk enough about um, the essays, right? Essays um, are good. Oh my the essays are amazing, yeah. and so there's there's a couple of collections of essays, um, and then children's books. So I don't know if there's favorites, but there's definitely, um, I, I and I continue to love the big box. So you know,
1: I feel like my brain works in favorites, unfortunately. Uh, <laughs> so I will say like. Obviously, all of the books I love, but Beloved is my fourth fourth favorite mm-hmm. Morrison book after Jazz, Sula, Blue I. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. Sula, you know, like I, I grew up with a mother who loved books, who loved reading, and I think my mother like put a lot of books in my hand or like just had a lot of books around that were about, quote unquote, complicated women or written by women. Like one of the first books I ever read was uh, Your Blues Ain't Like Mine, Phoebe Moore-Campbell, mm-hmm. um, these kind of things. So Sula really spoke to me even as a young person. Mm-hmm. But I say a lot to say like all those books are, you know, the best book of all time. So
2: okay. And there's there's, you know, there's this idea of of a sort of complicated character. Like I think of um Carrie Washington's character in scandal, complicated character that I love, actually. Um and I miss scandal in the writing. But um <laughs> you know there's the, there's the complicated character but there's also the complicated society and the complicated right. life there's the there's the perfectly amazing wonderful um woman who is 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 in the center of this story that is living in a in a world that will maybe never accept her never think that she's beautiful never think that she's worthy never think that she's valued never think that and and then you still sort of have to make a life and so that's that's some of it too yeah
0: Thank you for tuning into the BPL podcast today. I hope you enjoyed. To find out more about the Bexley Public Library, including upcoming events, visit our website, bexleylibrary.org, or the handle at Bexley Library across all social media platforms. Special thanks to FOMO Deep for lending us their song, Bourbon Neat, for the podcast. Check out all their music at fomodeep.com. Email me with any questions, comments, or suggestions at podcast at bexleylibrary.org. Thank you. Ooh. Mm.